Here we go. On, uh, over the last few years, whether, uh, whether I've been on a run or working at our house doing some remodeling project or cutting the grass out there, um, one of the things I've really gotten into are true crime podcasts kind of murder mystery type podcasts. And so uh, a few years ago, it was Serial, right? And that wasn't, a, that wasn't a mystery or a murder as much as it was just kind of this mystery. Um, then Serial Part 2 with Bo Bergdahl, and that one was far less interesting. Um, then there was uh, Up and Vanished last year. Any Up and Vanished people out there? Oh, my gosh. Yes, Joey Kahn, because we're nerds. Um, please do yourself a favor, Up and Vanished. Um, then there's been uh, S-Town, which was bizarre. I can't recommend that as your pastor. But um, And then this year I've gotten into one called Atlanta Monster. So y'all are giving me blank stares. Okay. Well, one of the things that's really fascinating about these podcasts and really just murder mystery stories is that... In, in, as these things unfold, you have people who are trusted with information and they're told not to tell anyone else or these certain people over here. And one of the things that keeps these stories moving is that those people always tell. The, the, the informant, the secret keeper just blows the truth out there and things just get complicated and they compound and it's just this web of lies and all of this stuff. They were trusted with the secret and they take it to the media or they take it to the police and the original person gets in trouble. People are betraying others all the time. Um, and I'm, as a listener of these things, I just get conditioned for that kind of betrayal and that sort of kind of you give up secrets all the time. That when you trust someone to go between you and another person, you trust them, but not me, not me, because I've been conditioned through these podcasts, so don't trust me with anything. Well, what if there's actually such thing as a go-between, someone who has information, who kind of represents you and what you're about and your story, and instead of actually taking that information and blabbing it out there in a hurtful sort of way, what if there's actually such a person who takes that information, who represents you, and who goes between, but in order to build relationship and trust and not to tear it down? That sort of idea is what the priesthood in the Old Testament is all about. It's all about someone who goes between God and the people in order to restore trust and nearness in relationship. And what's really interesting in this passage tonight is that that's what we see. As God is organizing and kind of constituting this people whom he has redeemed and saved from slavery in Egypt, he's brought them out into the wilderness, and he's making them a people. He's giving them kind of a national identity and saying, this is who you are, and you're going to do these things, and you shouldn't do those things. And really, that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. You're my people, and in order for me to be with you and near to you as my people, you've got to act and do these things. Act this way and do these things. And in this, this passage tonight, we see that God has set up a system of priests, of mediators, of, of, of people who would go between God and the people in order to reestablish that relationship. And so if, if, we, if you're here the last couple of weeks, if not, that's fine. We actually put these on a podcast, RUF Tulsa, you can listen to them. But if the last few weeks we've been talking about the sacrifices as the means by which God draws near to sinful people, if that's the means by which he does that and how he does that, then the priesthood is 
Who does that? It's the who. Who are the people who bring us back to God? It's the priesthood. Now, the question that you're probably wondering tonight is, why am I showing up on a Wednesday night to talk about this thing that seems very outdated, very antiquated, very not anymore kind of New Testament stuff? I'm going to suggest this, that understanding this, understanding what the priesthood was, and looking and seeing what the relevance is for our life is of great importance to you, whether or not you profess faith in Jesus or not. It, It has something to do with the things that you think about every single day. You're thinking, what in the world could that be? We're going to find out. Let's read and see what that is. Leviticus chapter 8, start in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece, he put the Urim and the Tumen. And he set the turban on his head and the turban in front uh, and on the turban in the front. He set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of that basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat on the right thigh. Here's my pause. That sounds weird. Verse 27. And he put, all the, he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then the Lord took from them their hands and burned them on the altar Uh, took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the bread and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And skipping over to Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. 
This is God's word. Let me pray real quick before we jump in and look at it. Lord, we have, uh, we've read your word, and now we pray that you would help us to understand it. So unstop our ears and, and give our hearts a moment of, of rest from school, um, rest and attention, that we might hear what it is you have for us in this passage that was so long ago and seems so unfamiliar to us. I pray that you would show that to us now by your Spirit. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so the passage that I just read, whether or not you caught it, it lays out three different levels of priesthood. Three different levels of the priesthood that were at work in ancient Israel. And so, because I'm boring, those are going to be our three points tonight. So let's just jump right in. They're the first one, the high priest. The high priest. Who is the high priest and what was his significance? Well, the high priest was the spiritual head and leader of Israel. He was the main go-between between God and the people. He was the grand poobah. He was, he was the, the mega church pastor. He was the man. What about him? He was the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies, which was the intercourt of the tabernacle. Remember, or maybe you don't remember, maybe you don't. The tabernacle was this physical place that God commanded them to build where he would dwell. And the tabernacle had these various courts and these various layers of places where you could go depending on who you were. The high priest and the high priest alone could go all the way to the middle of it to what's called the Holy of Holies, and that was where God dwelled. He dwelled on the, the seat, the throne of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so only the high priest could go back there, and then only one day a year, the Day of Atonement. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. So that's who he was. There, we could talk about that all night, but we're not. But I want to actually kind of describe the high priest by looking at what he had on, by looking at what he was wearing. It's on the front of your bulletin there. Color bulletins this week at RUF. How you doing? Uh, because I think that's where this all gets pretty fascinating. Verse 5 through 9 of the passage that we just read uh, was all about this expensive and ornate and elaborate clothing that was given to Aaron. There's the golden ephod and the sash and the urim and the tumen and the turban. All of those things, and I'm not going to go into all the details of how. You can ask me tomorrow. All of those things were in precision symbolic of the tabernacle, that all of those things represented the tabernacle. And so one scholar named Vern Poitras, fun fact, actually his son was a student at Vanderbilt when I was an intern with RUF at Vanderbilt, and so I feel kind of famous. Um, Nerdy Bible scholar, I know his son, basically famous. So uh, Vern Poitras says that the priest was a sort of living tabernacle. He was a living tabernacle. So he was a man, just an ordinary man, but God had anointed him and called him out to do this extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And when he would put on the priestly garment, the robe and the ephod and all of this stuff, it was as if he was inside of the tabernacle itself. What does his clothes clothes look like right there on, on the front of your paper? Verse 8 talks about a breast piece. What's this? I'm going to jump back to Exodus 28. This is on 
The screen, I do believe, yeah, let me read this for us. It describes the breast piece. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it, of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen you shall make it. You shall set it in four you shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. In the second row, an emerald and a sapphire and a diamond. In the third row, a jacinth, an agate, an amethyst, in the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. What's the picture here? The picture here is that as the high priest would put on these beautiful and brilliant garments, and as he would put on this breastpiece with the, the twelve tribes of Israel right across the front of him, and as he would go into the tabernacle, and as he would minister in front of the Holy of Holies, he was in a very real way bringing the people to God. He was mediating between the people out there and God over here. Their names were carved and etched, engraved into these stones. He was the high priest. He was the go-between, the appointed mediator. So what do we do with that today? Here's my big claim. I sent it out in the text today, and I said it just a minute ago, and I'm going to make it now. Who the high priest is and what the high priest is doing has everything to do with your and my life every single day. How, Brent, you're asking? Great question. Here's what I mean. I mean that when I was in college and I was coming uh, my freshman year of college from small town Oklahoma and I show up. And I don't have any friends. I've got my roommate, but we're, we're not all that similar. So I, I'm, try, I'm meeting people, and I'm getting to know people, and we're doing the thing that we do when we get to know people. We ask all those questions, which are kind of meaningless, but if you actually listen to people's answers, it actually begins to kind of fill out who this person is and what they're like or what their interests are and that sort of stuff. So we're doing that back and forth, and I'm telling people what I did in high school and all this. And, but inevitably, one of the things I would tell them, and some of you all have heard this before, is that I, I would tell them that I played golf. <laughs> and you're thinking, why would you ever admit that? Well, I thought it was cool. Um, but I wouldn't just tell them that I used to play golf. I would tell them that I was going to play golf at OU, but I talked to the coach, and I realized the schedule was going to be too much, and I wanted to do some other things on campus, and so I decided not to do it. Now, I told that story, some version of that, for about eight years. Here's the problem. It just wasn't true. I never talked to the coach. Therefore, I was never about to play at OU. Why did I not talk to the coach? Because I wasn't good enough to even talk to the coach, much less play at OU. Why would I do that? I'll tell you exactly why. Because I wanted people to think that I was somebody. I wanted to matter. I wanted for them to think, oh, that's cool. That's kind of neat. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. 
he, he makes this claim, and he kind of starts to build this huge case. That, that's what Romans is, it's this big, massive treatise. And it's just this logical case that he builds from beginning to end. But right out of the gate in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this claim that, that God has created us, but not just that. That God has created us to need Him. To need Him. God has created us to, to need His smile, His affection, His love, His acceptance. Now, that that sounds sweet and that sounds good, but there's a big problem that Paul also says. He says, we actually hate that it's God who says that we need Him. Because what we realize as people is that, that if God has created, if someone has created us to need them, we don't actually want it to be God. Because if it's God, if we need God, then that means if we come to God and we give ourselves to Him, then as God, He gets to make demands of our life. He gets to say, yeah, you belong to me. You don't get to do just whatever you want to do because I created you and I know how you're meant to function and work and I know what's actually going to satisfy you and what's not just going to leave you thirsting for more. And we hate that. We hate that. We want to do what we want to do in a thousand different ways. And what happens when we reject God as such is that that need and desire to be significant and to feel our weight and to be somebody and to matter and to know that we're accepted and loved, it doesn't go away. And instead of, if we're not getting it from that God, we do something very clever. We make our own little gods. We fashion gods of our own liking. Hang with me here. That breast piece that, that Aaron wore as the high priest, it was marvelous. It was beautiful. It was brilliant. It was amazing. We tirelessly try and control the image that we project outward on campus and on social media and all sorts of these different things. We tirelessly try to perfect that so that someone will look and say, you are beautiful. We do more than that. We enslave ourselves to the demands of the university so that we can look at a GPA or so that we can have a professor look at us and say, you're brilliant. You are really, really smart. Come and be my GA. Come work for me. Come do research with me. We manage our actions and manipulate our behaviors so we can get the right people around us who will say or just act like they love us. We do this stuff all the time. We commit ourselves to the idea of a career at the expense of relationships so that we can have someone look at us and say, you're really important. You really do matter. Wow, look at your resume. Look at your job title. You're a somebody. See, what happens is that if we don't believe that we have the affection and the smile and the acceptance of God... The desire won't go away. We will just look for it to be satisfied elsewhere. And so in in the Old Testament with the people of God, the high priest was a visual, tangible sign, someone that they could look at and say, he is representing me to God. That when he goes up with the name of my clan and my family on his breast piece in all of its beauty and brilliance and splendor, God looks at him and he sees me. 
That's the high priest. So that's Aaron. But look, y'all, there's even a problem with this. Because Aaron was a sinner like you and me. Part of this passage says that, that he needs to be consecrated and purified and set apart. And so when he's offering these bulls and these rams and all this different stuff, he's having to atone, this, offer this thing to atone for his own sin. Even as he's doing it for the sins of the people of Israel, he's got to take care of his own sin. So in all of these sacrifices, it's really throwing forth this image and this picture that, that there's got to be a better high priest. Someone who can actually represent us to God, who doesn't have his own sin and yuck and stuff that that has to be dealt with. And the New Testament comes screaming at us and says, yes, there is. There is a better high priest. Read the book of Hebrews. It's amazing. It talks all about Jesus as the better everything. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, it actually starts at the end of chapter 4. It just goes on and on and on about how Jesus is the greater Aaron. That he doesn't have to keep offering these bulls and rams and consecrating himself and all this. He offered himself once and for all, and he was the great high priest, and he didn't have his own sin to atone for. He is the better and greater Aaron. And friends, it's not just that your names would have been written on the breastpiece that he would wear. Isaiah says that our names are written on his hands. They're written on his hands that when he goes to the cross to die, to pardon his people and to forgive their sin, those nail marks are your signature. It's your name. Jesus is the greater Aaron. He's the high priest. And look, if you miss that, you miss not just Christianity and the Christian message. You miss hope itself. Because without that truth... You are going to go out and try to ask all kinds of lesser gods to fill you and to make you be a somebody and tell you you're great or beautiful or brilliant or whatever it is your heart craves. Without Jesus, you'll be looking for that. Let's talk about the Levitical priests. Aaron has sons. We saw him show up here in this passage. That is, there are others from the tribe of Levi. That was one of the 12 tribes that would have been on the breastpiece. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi. There would be others from the tribe of Levi also, his sons. His sons would fulfill other functions in and around the temple as well. We could think of them as pastors. That Aaron is a senior pastor, and then you have all these assistant pastors, associate pastors, or whatever else. Their responsibility was to represent these individual worshipers to God. They had all these other responsibilities. So... We looked at, and I'm not going to rehash it, but a lot of that thing that we read just a minute ago, that was all the ordination process. Now, what is that? It was the process by which these people were set apart for the job that God had called them to do, to take care of the temple, to to tend to the church business. And so they went through this very intricate and elaborate process that qualified them and prepared them for that ministry and for that role. Notice right there, um, about the middle of verses 22 through 30, a couple different times, that there's that interesting thing that says that, that he smeared the blood on their ears and on their right thumb and on their big toe of the right foot. And actually, the Hebrew language says the big toe, if you're curious. So um, why would, what's that there for? It was so that the people could do God's work with their hands, that they could hear God's words with their ears, and that they could go about the business of walking in holiness 
for the sake of the people around them. So the work of the priests is fourfold. It's up on the screen. They would teach the people God's word. They would guide them in wisdom. They would intercede for the people and pray for them. And they would lead them in worship. That was the normal stuff that just an ordinary Levitical priest would do. But we find out in chapter 10, which we didn't read, that um, if Aaron was imperfect, which he was, then Aaron's sons were just downright, like, faulty. They were faulty. They were imperfect to a degree, like, to an exponent. Um, They were careless in God's house. They were rebellious. And much of the Old Testament, if you... If you would read it, and I encourage you to, it's not always the most thrilling, but a lot of the Old Testament is just story after story after story after story of the priests just wholesale failing. They, were, they just didn't do what God had called them to do, almost in any front. And so like the, the high priest who is himself a failure, the Levitical priests are a failure, There's kind of this growing impetus in this movement for, uh, will there ever be someone who will be a greater priest to come and lead us? So, this has been our pattern. Let's look to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about a greater priest to come? Well, this is going to be anticlimactic for you. Heads up. 1 Timothy 5 and Ephesians 4 and a couple other places in the New Testament. It actually says, uh, the Apostle Paul and others are describing what happens in the church? And it says that there would be these, these people who would be set apart and they would be models for the church and they would serve the church and they would do the exact same four things that the priests would do. They would teach God's word. They would guide them in wisdom, intercede for them in prayer and lead them in worship. These people are called what? Pastors. They're pastors. And so from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see that this pattern stays the same. That there are men who are set apart for the ordained ministry of the church. And that's why we see the instructions. And this is, look, I don't want to get into this in fullness. We can talk about it tomorrow at lunch if you want. This is why when you get to 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Corinthians 11 and some different places... You see that when, when, uh, when the apostles start to talk about who the pastors and churches are, they say that they're men. That is because there is a high degree of correlation between this Old Testament priesthood and the, and the New Testament church. That doesn't devalue women. That's not saying that women are less than because they, they can't be pastors according to Scripture. God has gifted and appointed people to do all kinds of different things in His church. But that's what it says. So, so I can picture the eye rolls with you. Like, oh, pastors. Yeah, I get it. Some of you have been at the receiving end and very involved uh, perhaps in churches or close to churches or pastors who have failed miserably. Miserably, whether through some moral failure, an affair, embezzlement, um, saying untrue things. I mean, the list can go on and on and on, and it does go on and on and on. Or you've just been part of a church, maybe, or part of an RUF ministry. Be soft. Um, Where, like, you're just like, oh, my gosh, this guy is awful. And he's so drab, and he's so monotone. He just goes on and on and on and on and on. And you're thinking, this is the better thing from the Old Testament? This, this guy, these people? And look, 
as much as we may grumble about those things and as much as we have been disappointed, rightly so, by pastors and others who have failed us and been terrible examples of what we ought to be, God calls Christians to join churches where there are men and people leading the church. And that, that is sobering, I understand, because it feels so binding and so opposite of freedom and like opposite of Jesus. Jesus came to set me free. Well, but Jesus also through the apostles says that you are most free when you're submitting yourself to pastors and elders and people around you and who you have accountability in your life for the way that you live. And that's the way the New Testament functions. And that's the way we live. If there is not a place in scripture that gives you position as a Christian to be kind of like Step uh, sidestepping the church and saying, I don't want that. I like Jesus and I like his people, but I don't want to be a part of the church. The scripture just says, I have no category for that. He calls us to move toward the place where God is at work through his pastors. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. And that feels very self-serving right now. I get it. But God asks us. He asks us to submit ourselves to the people in authority over us in the church. So, let's think about this. Actually, let's go on. Number three, kingdom of priests. So that raises the question, what is my purpose? I get it. There's pastors out there. What's my purpose? The third priests right here shows us, and this is why I read that Exodus passage. You can turn back to it if you want. It's on the, I guess, the opposite side of your page. You could read through the book of Leviticus, and and it might be tempting to think that Israel's only purpose for existence is just to, like, to go to the tabernacle and worship and do sacrifices, and then you go do something and you get unclean and you go purify yourself. It just, it seems like life would just be consumed with doing all the stuff. There's actually a a huge picture at worship at, at work here and it's all about how this the town was situated the the camp was situated right at the middle of the camp would be the tabernacle and that was very intentional because god wanted to be in the midst of his people and then within the tabernacle itself as i mentioned earlier there are these concentric rings and circles and courts where different people could go the high priest to the middle and varying people to all the other things But look, the whole purpose of this setup and the geography of the Israelite camp was meant so that as God situated them in a particular place in the world, and as he blessed them, which he promised to do, it's so that the people around them would look at Israel and say, oh my gosh, look at how much God is blessing them. Look at how much joy they have. Look at how well life is going for them. Look at the way they forgive one another. Look at the family structures they have. That's amazing. We want to be a part of that. That's how God designed it. They were to be a kingdom of priests. This this society and the ordering of this was genius. Well, what about now? What about now? Look at this. Very interestingly, the Apostle Peter, a disciple of Jesus, says this as he writes to a group of Christians. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 and 5, As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter is saying something incredible. He's saying that you are a kingdom of priests. That you, we, together, the church, is meant to be amazing. It's meant to be the place that's full of the most joy and the most satisfying relationships. It's to be the people who others look at and say, man, that person's life seems to be working. God must be blessing them. That's what the church is. It's the kingdom of priests. So, in sum, the Christian's life is to be centered on the high priest and who the high priest is and a vision of that person who can represent me to God. Second, it gets centered on the vision of my involvement in a plain old local church with a boring pastor and lousy people. He calls us to be a part of that work and says, that's how I'm changing the world, through that church. And thirdly, he says that you are a kingdom of priests. And that means that we take our responsibility for our life to be a blessing to the world. And that means we find ways that our vocation and our family and our habits and our time and our consumption and our giving, how everything conforms to God's plans to bless and change and redeem the world. And I know that some of this sounds very foolishly optimistic to some of you. You're clouded by how far short pastors have fallen, how far short Christians have fallen around you. You've been disappointed. You've been let down. You've been lied to. You've been betrayed. I'm probably part of the problem more than I am the solution at times, no doubt. And there's lots of people who aren't at RUF because that's actually true. I get that. I have to own that. But friends, don't miss the beauty of the high priest. Don't miss the first vision that's laid out for us. He was beautiful above all things. He was covered with gold and jewels. He was an absolute beauty. And look, to say that Jesus is our high priest doesn't mean that we're sticking our head in the mud and saying all the other hurt and the bad pastors and the church. and all. It's, it's not to say those things don't matter. They do matter. And we have to take our fallenness seriously. But what it means to say that Jesus is my high priest is to say that I am being represented before God right now. That there is a beautiful one who is representing me. And as God looks at him, he sees a beautiful one. And that means that when God sees you, if you are hidden in Christ, he sees you as beautiful, completely beautiful, spotless, brilliant, as a somebody that your life matters. Jesus presents you to God and says that you are valuable beyond measure. Being a Christian is more than just being forgiven. It means that you are loved and accepted and treasured by God. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an English pastor. He was a a doctor who then went back to be a pastor. He must have bumped his head somewhere along the way. Um, He was ministering to people often, as pastors do, and, and he tells a story. He said after he would explain the way to Christ for someone, uh, someone would often look up and say, sorry, he would turn to them and say, well, are you, are you willing or ready to say that you're a Christian now? He says sometimes people would look up and say, well, you know, I'm not good enough or I'm not ready yet. And Lloyd-Jones would say, I knew then that I had been wasting my breath. 
Why? Because they are still thinking in terms of themselves. Look, y'all, so often we are trying to measure our spirituality or our spiritual health in the wrong way. When you're asked that or when you think about that, you turn inward and you start looking at how many quiet times you've had or how many, how many times you've prayed and all of this other stuff. And what the gospel of Jesus is trying to get you to do, what this passage in Leviticus is trying to get you to do is to, to not look at yourself, but to look at the high priest. He's the beautiful one. And if I'm in him, if I'm trusting that he's representing me before God, then the God of the universe knows that I am his and that he is mine. It doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible. It doesn't matter how many times you pray. It doesn't matter if you've ever been to church. It doesn't matter. Are you in Jesus? Is he your high priest? If he is, those things will come because God will change your heart. It's all about the beautiful one. It's all about him. Let's pray together.